As we watch freedom and liberty under attack abroad, I'm here to fulfill my responsibilities under the Constitution to preserve freedom and liberty here in the United States of America. And it's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist, one of the nation's most on one of the nation's most prestigious courts. My nominee for the United States Supreme Court is Judge Katanji Jackson. I'm Boyd Freeman, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Buchanan, Ingersoll and Rooney, and this is Dimensions of Diversity. Of the 115 justices who have served on our United States Supreme Court since it was established in 1789, a resounding 108 of them have been white men. Three have been people of color. And with President Joe Biden's nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the court, she has a chance to become the fourth woman and the first black woman to serve on the highest court in the land. But of course, when we have a chance to change history, we often have to change attitudes and perceptions. Here with me to discuss the historic nomination are two of the leaders in the Philadelphia Black legal community. Adara Combs is Philadelphia's victim advocate and the president of the Barristers Association of Philadelphia. And she's joined by Kia Gee, executive director of the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations and president of Philadelphia's chapter of the National Bar Association Women Lawyers Division. President Biden told us uh, during his campaign that he was gonna nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court if he got the opportunity. And he delivered on that promise. And, you know, just the image, I can still see it in my head with him appearing with Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson standing by his side to accept the nomination. It was historic. Uh, Kia, what did that moment feel like for you? Wow. I mean, for me, I just saw so much hope, so much possibility, so much um, of, of what it probably took for her to get to that point. Um, the struggle just as a black woman lawyer, um, the struggle to be seen, to be uh, respected, um, finally culminating in a point of visibility where um, folks see and respect um, the, the integrity, the, the, the intelligence um, that a black woman can bring to such a high office. So I, it just made me proud more than anything. Um, I have a daughter, so it is you know good for her to see role models like that and to know that you can achieve one of the highest and most coveted positions um, in the world, honestly. Adara? I felt joy, for sure. I felt hope. I felt admiration, just pure awe. Um, but I also felt anxious. Um, anxious because as a black woman, I know personally and through observation of those that have become that have come before me, um, that have paved the way either directly or indirectly, that whenever we are presented with such an important opportunity in this country, that it is often uh, overtaken by the desire to not see us in those positions. So I kind of saw it and I was like, yes, like this is the moment, this is going to be amazing. And thank you, President Biden for actually following through on what you said, unlike a lot of other people who promise to elevate black women that do not, um, but rather, but with that was also the, uh, what's about to come next? What are y'all about to say? What are you gonna ask? What are you going to do? 
to diminish this Black woman's stellar career, um, her performance on the bench and as a practitioner, how she shows up in this space. Like, what are you going to do to dim her light? So it was a mixed bag for me. Yeah, and that's unfortunate that, you know, the, the systemic inequalities, you know, the discrimination, the bias that is normally wrought with, as you mentioned, each time you get a person of color, particularly, you know, a black woman who has that intersectionality there, um, who's going to be put thrust into the spotlight, if you will, you know that that is, you know, inherently going to be what comes next. Um, but but I do want to talk about that moment of joy and, and optimism and hope that, that each of you alluded to. And Kia, you mentioned, you know, you have a daughter. Um, the, the struggle for black women and their representation in, on the federal bench, I mean, this is really a short-lived one, right? So it was 1966 when Judge uh, Constance Baker Motley was appointed to the court. So we're not talking about, you know, something that dates back to the 1700s for black women. We're talking about the late 1960s. Um, but at least, you know, this generation of uh, young girls now, you know, they're going to have these kind of images that we saw uh, when when uh, Judge Jackson was nominated. Uh, Key, is this going to inspire uh, more black girls to want to grow up to become lawyers and dare I say justices? I think so, because, um, you know, like the saying goes, representation matters. And if we can see ourselves in it, we can achieve it. I know for me, um, one of the, the earliest uh, sort of representations of an African-American female uh, lawyer was Claire Huxtable, uh, just as you had alluded. <laughs> and so just seeing her on the Cosby show was like, oh, wow, that what kind of um, career is that? That seems exciting. Oh, we're doing that, you know? So um, it made me, me think that being a lawyer was an attainable goal. And so certainly, just as you know, young black boys and girls saw Barack Obama, pre former President Barack Obama, um, and his historic uh, victory for presidency, um, saw that we were able to achieve those high-ranking political careers like president. Um, just seeing that, seeing um, her nomination go through, it will inspire young women to know that they can indeed become attorneys and legal. They can have great legal minds. They can be brilliant um, and they can be fierce because uh, it was a couple of times during those Senate hearings that she cut them a look. And I was like, okay, Katanji did not come to play. It was like, you know, she was getting ready. I saw a lot of my cousins, my aunts, my, you know, in that look, that look was, that's a universal look. So if you can see a person in their authentic, their authentic self being um, vulnerable, being present, and you can identify with the feelings that they must be feeling, I think it's encouraging to those that are younger to know that it's possible, anything is possible. Because at the end of the day, you have Katanji Brown Jackson, who is a black woman, brilliant, but also more importantly, a black woman that you can see yourself in your family in. But but to the points that you were making about her composure uh, during the confirmation hearings, Adara, the confirmation hearings, uh, first let's set the stage. Confirmation hearings uh, in the past were, and I'm talking about, you know, decades ago. I mean, this was some of the most boring stuff that you could have ever watched, you know, on television. It has become a bit of reality TV, uh, you know, in, in the last like two decades uh, that we've been watching these confirmation hearings. And this year proved to 
be just as drama-filled and theatrical as, as some of the, the most uh, recent ones we've seen. But Judge Jackson was attacked, and she was attacked for many things. I mean, her membership on the board of a private school and the curriculum, everything down to what are your LSAT scores? I mean, that was truly the viral buzz that we should be you know, inquiring into what her LSAT scores were. When you just testified a minute ago that you didn't know if critical race theory was taught in K through 12, I, I, I will confess, I, I find that statement a little hard to reconcile. Number of images should not be considered as a sentence enhancement. Adara, you know, you lead a, a very large uh, organization of black lawyers in one of the largest cities in our country. You know, what is the sentiment then from, you know, your demographic, you know, black lawyers in Philadelphia around how we can maybe even put more people into the pipeline so that it's not one of these um, episodic occurrences when we see a, a black person who's going up for confirmation? Uh, and then also, how can we educate people a bit more around infusing equity into this process? So I think the interesting thing about your question, Lloyd, is that it takes the shape of not a misunderstanding on your part at all, but a common misunderstanding that we haven't been trying to put people in these types of uh, trajectories mm -hmm. for decades. Mm -hmm. Right. Like those of us in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas know that we literally stand on the shoulders of giants in every sense of that of that phrase. Um, I know that in every city that's not common and every city that's not even possible because there may not be any giants that exist just yet. You may be the first of your kind. So I understand that. But I think that the question really is, is what can we do when we get to that point where we've pushed as far as we can? to make it so they get past that line, that invisible line that has been created for us as Black practitioners. Because we have increased the number of Black attorneys that exist, generally speaking. Do we have work to do? Absolutely. Um, but we, we work hard. We, we elevate. We, you know, push for promotions. We push for diversity within our firms, within our agencies. And we do that work on the ground level. The problem is that at some point, it plateaus and it stops. Not because we want it to. Um, but because systemically, um, it was historically designed to, and those systems are still there, um, no matter the amount of effort that's being taken to dismantle them. Um, so I think that's more so the question. With a lot of the same players who are in charge of the system uh, as they were designed, <laughs> when we heard the statistics. <laughs> Exactly. And that's the question. That's that's the problem, right? It's like at some point, you know, uh, not to, to, to speak, um, you know, casually, but at some point, you know, keeping systems in place was cool, right? Like that was the thing to do. That's what folks did, right? Not for us, but for their benefit. And now you have those exact same people in these same exact positions. And now it's not cool. So now we have to figure out how to dismantle those things so that we can put forth diversity and equity and inclusion um, in all those areas that now have become hot topics. Um, everybody wants to get into DEI. There's a, a course, a day, a conference, a, a position, an officer, an advocate for all of that in every space because now it's something that we want to work towards. Um, whereas we, uh, practitioners of color um, and female practitioners, have been working towards these goals since the beginnings of our career because we had to. And can we just even talk about the hypocrisy in that question? about her LSAT scores. I mean, you, you said there has been 104 white male justices and 
however many, four, four, I think you said. 108 um, white men. 108. And out of those 108, how many were asked about their LSAT scores? Out of the most recent three um, to join the Supreme Court, how many were asked about their, their LSAT scores? The double standard is just, it's, it, it, it's so apparent that it just makes your blood boil. Because we're talking about, at the end of the day, we're talking about somebody that's Harvard educated, okay? We're talking about someone that graduated at the top of their class. And you have the gall to ask about their LSAT scores. As if she was given some sort of free ride just because of affirmative action. I mean, that's the dog whistle, if we're being honest. Um, that just discounts the fact that she is a Harvard educated attorney who graduated at the top of her class. Um, and so it just, it makes my blood boil to even think that they, they, um, the right right wing media, thought that that was an appropriate retort to, to even have, to have an honest discussion and to say, you know, with some level of entitlement, oh, well, why don't we get that? Well, when did you ever ask for it? Before. And why do you think you're entitled to have that? It's just, it's, it's baffling. And sometimes you just have to call it out. It's so hypocritical. And just, if I could add to that, not only is she an accomplished, Harvard-educated, top-of-her-class attorney, she's also a judge. So at some point, somebody, a body of folks, decided that she was good enough that body. That, that, that body. that <laughs> body. That same body. That's the most amazing <laughs> thing about it. It's that body. <laughs> and now, and all of a sudden, when she seeks the highest elevation in yeah. our in our bench and our judiciary, now, yeah. oh, you're you're not you're not in line with my ideals. You don't. Your your sentencing on child pornography is too lenient. Your <clears throat> whatever your 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 ideals on critical race theory are are too extreme or or whatever the case may be. Now that's an issue, but before it never was, and that just seeks to prove that while we continue to move forward and continue to progress in the profession, there are always these glass ceilings that exist that stop us or attempt to stop us um, in our tracks. Absolutely. And yeah. also, I just wanted to say another thing in terms of the LSAT scores. I thought it was interesting because I had people in my family, people in my, you know, my community reaching out to me saying, well, wait, like, is that a normal request? Like, well, what were your LSAT scores? Like, is that, oh, I feel like a lot of times we assume that the masses know what's normal, what's not normal in our profession. And I was like, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I could not tell you my LSAT score right now. I would have to look it up someplace and I, I think the, the board or something would have to tell me what my LSAT score was. So the fact that they were presenting it as if this was just like, we asked everybody. A thing, like it's like, a thing. You know, and if we can think back to like what the LSAT was, like, I mean, we're talking about basic analytical questions, math skills. So what does that have to do with the fact that she brings this breadth of experience as a public defender, a federal public defender, a judge, she's on the court of appeals right now. How do you discount all of that experience and go bouncing back to LSATs? That, it's just bizarre. It's called, it's called grasping. Uh, and at that point, you know, they're just grasping and, and they're looking for a sound bite. But, you know, all was not lost because Senator Cory Booker, uh, he came to her rescue. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley. Mine, she has sat on my desk 
for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. And, uh, you know, on his last day of, of questioning, you know, he didn't actually ask any questions. He simply made one of the most heartfelt speeches that, you know, I've ever heard, especially coming from the Senate. Um, and, you know, he said, and I want to quote, nobody's going to steal my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry. Talk about how you actually not only stand up, but speak truth in the Senate and, and standing up for a Black woman. Adira, how did that make you feel when you heard Senator Booker speaking? Well, I'll say in this very moment, hearing you uh, recite his words gave me chills yet again. So I had chills when I heard it. I had chills again. It almost moved me to tears, to be quite honest. And those who know me know that I'm not particularly emotional, <laughs> but I almost moved to tears is honest how, honestly how I felt for a few reasons. One, because it was necessary. So it's, it's hurtful in that regard, because the fact that he had to come to her defense is problematic dressed like very problematic but the fact that he did so did so eloquently did so with dignity did so with like genuine love like you could feel the outpouring of just pride mm -hmm. and love that not only he had but also that he was describing I think he said he was going for a run or a bike ride or something and someone stopped him and he was like honestly they were just trying to get close to me because I'm close to you and I just that showing that's power. It just, it, it was powerful. It truly was powerful. And you can tell how emotional he was. He was in his position and all of his accomplishments to see her rise to this occasion. Um, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And it made me feel like there's hope. We have each other. We all we got, as, as, we, as we say. Um, and even in a room full of sharks, who were literally trying to tear her apart with every single question, there was someone, some black man that was going to stand up and defend her. Yeah, that's exactly what makes me, brings me back to the point of representation mattering because no one could have done that for her the way he did that. He did that because he knows the history of these attacks. He's probably endured the similar attacks himself. He was able to swoop in and cover her in that moment in a way that only we can do for each other because it's like, I got you. And like he said, God got you because he knew that that's what she needed at that moment. She needed to be lifted up. She needed to be um, covered. She needed to be protected. She needed to be encouraged and motivated. And he gave her all of that. And so for me, it's like, imagine when she gets on the bench of the Supreme Court and they go to ha start having some of those discussions and she's able to do the same thing when she's breaking down the merits, the legal merits of a case and, and show them, you know, in real time, some of the errors in their thinking and the hypocrisy in their ways. It just brings me back to the moment of, yes, representation matters. That's why, because you have to have someone there that will be your person that will identify with you, that will be able to protect you in ways that other people aren't seeking to do. That's it. That's it. And, you know, it's my hope that not only did Senator Booker say that and that it resonated with Judge Jackson, but that it resonated with um, uh, others who do not look like us. Uh, and so other people understood the magnitude of, of what was actually happening uh, on the optimistic side, because, yes, 
uh, black women have faced a lot, you know, despite the bias, despite the discrimination, despite the glass ceilings. And I think Adara even mentioned the invisible lines. Uh, there was something very visible. Uh, we saw represent, uh, a representation of ourselves. And uh, we all know that visible diversity breeds visible diversity. And so I gave you the statistics earlier, but it's my hope that we can uh, have a look back on this episode and, and some future point, And we could talk about how, you know, those glass ceilings are continuing to be shattered and how we now have a, a much more balanced representation of black women in the judiciary. Uh, Kia, Adara, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.